Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to Have We Got Planning News For You. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Welcome to our YouTube viewers too. Please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, and please do consider making a charity donation in place of a registration fee. We support the NHS Charities Together and the Shelter Just Giving pages, but if you'd rather donate to a charity of your choice, that would be equally great. Now we are beyond delighted to welcome as our very special guest uh, this evening, Lady Hale, until last year, President of the Supreme Court, trailblazer, inspiration to so many women and men, lawyers and non-lawyers, and of course, the author of countless judgments that will be celebrated for generations. Lady Hale, a huge thank you uh, from all of us for joining us. Um, I'll ask you my usual questions. Wh where are you calling from? And, and what, if anything, are, are you drinking this afternoon? I am calling from Richmond, but the real Richmond, the one in North Yorkshire, <laughs> not the one just down the Thames, uh, the original one. And I am drinking a good cup of strong Yorkshire tea in Excellent. an Alice in Wonderland mug. Which seems to sum up everything, really. <laughs> Absolutely, very, very. Apt. I suspect you're far from the only one drinking Yorkshire tea. We shall soon um, find out. Um, I, I, as you know, and as our viewers, uh, regular viewers will know, uh, we'll be uh, doing our discussion with you in the second half of the show, which Sasha will be leading. Uh, but as I say to all of our guests, if there's anything that we discuss in the first half that takes your interest, please feel free to to weigh in. But no obligation at all. Um, Mary, good afternoon. Good Go afternoon. <laughs> I'm I'm good afternoon. Yes. Hello. I'm back in the uh, wild woods of, of Wandsworth, sitting here drinking. In fact, I, it's not a gin and tonic. It might look like one, but it isn't. It's, it's water. It's just good old fashioned uh, tap water, actually, with a few bubbles thrown in. Um, and he hello from um, Wandsworth. And what's caught your news, your attention in the planning news this week, Mary? Well, I, I, my attention, and I'm sure the attention of many, has, has been um, captured by the very sad news of the sudden death of Stephen Ashworth. And I, I know that um, now is not the moment for tributes to him, but I think we all want to express our deepest condolences to Stephen's family uh, and also to the team at Denton's. Um, Stephen Ashworth was the, uh, as most of our viewers I'm sure will will know, the partner at Ashworth for many years, a great thinker in our world, and uh, also someone who, speaking personally, uh, supported me and instructed me 30 plus years ago, back in the day when it wasn't actually that popular or, uh, to instruct women. So he was a great supporter. Uh, of diversity and so I think it was very fitting that we dedicate tonight's show to Stephen. 
Here, here, Mary. Thanks very much indeed for that. Um, Paul, how are you? Uh, very well, Charlie. And uh, in terms of where I am, I'm in London, though, of course, my heart will always be in Yorkshire. Uh, <laughs> and in terms of what I'm drinking, uh, I too am drinking Yorkshire tea. I'm lying. I couldn't find any Yorkshire tea in this godforsaken <laughs> part of the world. So I'm drinking <laughs> <laughs> Sell out. <laughs> heartbroken. Um, Beyond belief, heartbroken. Chris, as always, our, our fashion icon. Yes, yes, I am sporting something that may be of some familiarity, uh, as indeed is presumption. And um, presumption is wearing a brooch. I don't know if you can see that, but um, your brooch is Lady Hale, somewhat famous. <laughs> um, well, do you see? Do you see the brooch oh, that yeah. I'm wearing? Oh my goodness! Oh, it is remarkably similar uh, to the one that the owl is wearing. So yes, that, yes. No doubt, a symbol wow. of wisdom for both of us. <laughs> oh, that's super. Yeah. A wise owl. Very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, made, he's made up and he's blushing. Um, so uh, I'm in London Chambers. Uh, I've been cross-examining a planning witness for two days, and I have to say, I want to give a call out to to that officer, Nicholas Smith. She's been cross-examined on planning policy, the need for older persons specialist housing, five-year land supply, AOMB policy, uh, neighbourhood plan policy. Surely somebody from the policy team could have supported her instead of her having to deal with all of that case. So, Nicola Smith, you did brilliantly. Well done. Two days cross-examination, a clear breach of your human rights. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm, I've got a drink. Um breaking glass ah <laughs> very topical um sasha good afternoon how are you i'm very well I, i'm disconcerted for two reasons one that chris has done his quickest cross-examination of his professional career <laughs> <laughs> and also that the king of the north is actually in the south <laughs> we might kidnap him and not allow him to return <laughs> I, I I am in London. I'm in home territory, and I'm a very nervous bunny because Arsenal have their biggest game of the season tonight, and so I'm crossing my fingers that we can actually win, and I can go <laughs> to Gdansk on May the 29th and watch them in the final. Excellent. Uh, well, Charlie Banner here um, from from Keating Chambers. Very originally, once again, I'm drinking Yorkshire tea. We've had so many Yorkshire themed episodes on this show. I now just have a stash. Your team, my game, I can pull out as and when needed. Um, so once again, um, the world's finest tea. Um, now um, let's get out the, the the get the case reports out of the way, so we can get on to our discussion with Lady Hale. And I believe Paul, you're going to go first um, with a case about Legoland. It's ironic, really, isn't it, Charlie? When Lord Carnworth was on the show, uh, I was given a house extension in Swansea. Uh, uh, to lead off the uh, the cases, and when uh, Lady Hale is on the show, uh, I'm given a, a case about Lego. So uh, I view that <laughs> totally appropriate. And I have been to Legoland and got drenched there, so I know all about it. Fantastic! I view that as a as a mark of appreciation. So I'll carry on uh, undaunted, and I hope you notice the flag in the background, which is now on, given our theme is now Yorkshire. Um, so this is a case of the Court of Appeal decided on the 26th of uh, April, uh, decision uh, on, on appeal against the decision of Mrs Justice Lang uh, back in December 2019, lead judgment by Lord Justice Coulson. It relates to a permission granted in April 2019 to construct a holiday resort uh, near to uh, Legoland Windsor. In my head, it's a resort constructed of Lego. And if it's not, then frankly, that should have been a ground of challenge. 
the recommendation was to uh, uh, to refuse it, but uh, the decision uh, was in fact to uh, uh, to grant it. Uh, there was then a challenge by the chair of Berkshire CPRE. Uh, I think this is a case that Mary referred to last week when we had Crispin on. Um, so it's a, a challenge by the chair of Berkshire CPRE alleging essentially five grounds, but one to four related to veteran trees and the uh, protection that veteran trees receive. And the fifth ground, which I think is probably the most interesting one, relates to appropriate assessment and whether or not uh, Section 31.2a of the Supreme Court Act allows you to say, uh, to quote the Smiths, what difference does it make? Um, <laughs> and the outcome of that, I'll, spoiler alert, is that uh, no, you, it is engaged and you can form a view that it makes no substantive difference. So um, Mrs Justice Lang rejected the challenge back in 2019. Uh, the Court of Appeal rejected the challenge. Um, there's a couple of interesting points of note, one of which is the appropriate assessment point I'll come to in a moment. Another of which is the reasons for granting planning permission and the Court of Appeal said what I think on with the benefit of hindsight is obvious, um, but which is that when you look at the reasons for granting permission, don't just look at the express reasons under the title reasons, but look at the totality of the decision. Because in that case, what was important to members was whether or not veteran trees were, were mitigated satisfactorily so as to avoid uh, an impact in relation to them. I think that, that makes sense uh, and is a, a rational and, and sensible decision, surprising perhaps uh, that, that, that the point was arguably. But what, what the court did grapple with was an earlier case as to whether that, that would involve a paper, ch paper chase, uh, an, a, a forbidden paper chase, and the court said absolutely not, because it's a logical thing to look at the decision, look at the 106 and look at the stated reasons. Um, there was also, a, a challenge relating to what members had to say during the course of their debates, particularly at an earlier meeting. And once again, the court said, oh, for goodness sakes, don't listen to what members have to say too closely because members say all sorts of things at decisions. What really counts is look at the reasons for decisions and the inference that you can draw from the reasons for the decisions. Brackets, politics is relevant when it comes to what members have to say. There was an issue about change of policy in relation to MPPF, which perhaps is not particularly interesting. But the appropriate assessment issue was there was no appropriate assessment, and yet it was common ground there should have been one. Um, and the, the Court of Appeal very robustly said, well, they, they were satisfied that the council had demonstrated that had there been one, that it wouldn't have made a difference to the outcome and that therefore Section 31.2a was engaged and that that was consistent with the, rel with the relevant European ju jurisprudence. We followed an earlier case of uh, uh, Walton. It's a sensible decision throughout extreme sensible decision and it's one that certainly it's not as daft as the as i was making out at the very outset thank you charlie thanks paul we did look at whether it's possible to commission in time for this week's episode a lego figurette of paul sadly not but i'm told there are um figurettes of the king in the north available which is uh, as close as, as close as you can get to one of you which i think you bought haven't you <laughs> um, unfortunately <laughs> You've already got it, probably. Now, Mary, you're going to tell us about, in fact, not one, but two judgments or sort of judgment, a judgment and a half on um, whether or not um, uh, local authorities can continue with virtual hearings in the absence of the, the temporary legislation on that matter being renewed. Indeed, I am. Thank you very much, um, Charlie. So part one, if I can call it that, uh, was last week on the 28th of April um, 2020. This was a decision of the president of the Queen's Bench Division, Dame Victoria Sharp, who was sitting with Mr. Justice Chamberlain. And 
The claim's principal purpose, as I'm sure most of the audience will, will remember, was to obtain declarations that meetings required by the Local Government Act 1972 could take place remotely on or after the 7th of May uh, this year, which is when the local authorities and police and crime panels, coronavirus flexibility of local authority and police and crime panel meetings regulations, uh, the, let's just call it the flexibility regulations, ceased to have effect. And the court refused to grant declarations to that effect and held that in this particular statutory context, and that's important, a meeting must take place at a single specified geographical location, but attending such a meeting involves physically going to it, and that being present at such a meeting involves physical presence at the location. Uh, and the second part uh, of the judgment, which was in fact handed down on Tuesday of, of this week, relate, related to a subsidiary question and the court invited additional written submissions on the question of whether a meeting that's required under the 1972 Act to take place in person is open to the public or held in public if the only means by which the public are permitted to access it are remote. So uh, they uh, received submissions from the parties. And I sh should perhaps say that it, this is Hertfordshire County Council with the Local Government Association that brought these proceedings and the government who defended them, as it were. And th the government was represented by Jonathan Moffat QC. And in his written submissions, he took the, the view that if the effect of the 1972 Act was that meetings uh, must be held physically in person, then open to the public and held in public should equally be interpreted as referring to physical attendance by the public. And the court agreed, uh, essentially, with that ruling, uh, making reference to um, the book on statutory interpretation, which when I was a student was just called Benyon on statutory interpretation, but which nowadays in 2020 in the eighth edition, the authors are now Benyon, Bailey and Norbury. Uh, so reliance was placed on what th those authors had to say. And also reliance was placed on section 15 of the Public Bodies Admission to Meetings Act, which also has some very specific um, provisions. Uh, but I, I think this is important for us as a planning audience, because some of us will be wondering whether, in fact, the public inquiry that um, Chris is in the middle of taking place virtually is, is lawful. Uh, the court went on to make it very clear that um, the ruling that they were giving was very much in the context of the 1972 um, provisions and the Act. They also went on to make it clear that, of course, their ruling didn't prevent local authorities from broadcasting or live streaming some or all of its meetings. But they made the point that such broadcasts are not on their own sufficient to satisfy the requirement that the meetings be open to the public or held in, in public. And they also were very keen to uh, point out that they said nothing about the numbers of the members of the public who should be admitted 
in person, which they recognise would need to be uh, the subject of current public health or government guidance. Um, so I, I think that uh, what this means is that all those meetings or planning committees that are set to take place uh, on or beyond the 7th of May have to be physically in-person meetings and there will need to be some arrangements made for the public to attend, but those arrangements can quite reasonably take into account current government guidance. Thanks, Mary. And of course, the irony is that um, all appeals from those in-person meetings currently uh, will only be taking place virtually um, because of uh, the different legislative regime um, to which planning appeals are subject. Um, I should say that um, those judgments and indeed all of the, the decisions we're talking about are available on our website or will be immediately after uh, today's show, including the next one, which I'm going to talk about, which is um, a decision of the Secretary of State for Housing Communities and Local Government allowing a, a planning appeal against the non-determination of, of a mainly outline, a planning application for a mixed use development, including 675 dwellings at Sittingbourne in, in Kent. Uh, the main controversial issues included the, the impact of the development on local highways, uh, the effect on two conservation areas and several listed buildings, and landscape and visual impact, each of which were decided in favour of the appellant. But those points don't really raise any wider issues, so I'm not going to dwell upon on those. Um, but the case is of broader significance for, for two points, which I am going to explore briefly. Firstly, it's yet another example of the promoter of an allocated site in an adopted development plan having to go to an appeal to get a planning permission. I think this must be at least the fourth such case we've reported this year, and I might be understating it, I haven't been back to count. And that suggests a theme, uh, and plainly an unsatisfactory theme, which will lend ballast to the government's proposed reforms, apparently more on which we'll hear next week in the Queen's speech, are reforms of the planning system, pursuant to which a local plan allocation in a so-called growth area will confer automatic uh, planning permission. The case for that automatic permission arising from allocation is, is being made by this theme of, of refusals of allocated sites. The second significant point, um, believe it or not, is in relation to conditions. How often is the most significant or one of the most significant aspects of a Secretary of State decision um, his or her finding about planning conditions? But here, the Secretary of State rejected a suite of proposed planning conditions, which had been sought by the local authority and endorsed by the inspector, despite the appellant's objections. Um, now, these conditions would have uh, secured a 50% reduction in carbon emissions compared to the building regulations targets for reserve matters phases approved before 2023, a 75% carbon reduction for phases of the development approved um, before 2027, and 100% thereafter. And the inspector's view was that whilst um, there were no specific development plan or indeed national policies, um, for the impositions of, of such um, conditions, the context of the climate emergency was a material consideration of sufficient weight to require those conditions nonetheless and to make it a necessary uh, part of, of granting planning permission. Um, now, that reasoning was capable of being rolled out in, in other planning appeals, given the, the obviously universal nature of the climate crisis. But the Secretary of State didn't agree. Um, uh, his view was that what mattered was the requirements of the development plan and adopted an emerging planning policy, none of which currently went as far or indeed nearly as far. Uh, and he felt it was inappropriate speculation to, to second guess what future policy requirements might be in relation to carbon reduction at the time of those future phases. Um, that's uh, a point of 
quite considerable significance uh, as local authorities up and down the country are, are declaring or have declared climate emergencies and are um, facing uh, a pressure um, to go faster in relation to responding on climate change than the time it takes to adopt new planning policy, which we all know takes best part of half a decade currently. Um, and and they, are, they are often the number of local authorities seeking to impose um, what might be thought to be onerous build requirements in the name of climate change. Um, for example, non-conventional heating as opposed to gas boilers, which for the volume house builders who build 10,000 odd homes a year um, cost an awful lot of money. That's a you know, um, su sufficiently onerous uh, widespread obligation to have an effect on their share prices. Uh, and this decision suggests that the government approach um, is, is that absence a explicit policy basis, these um, measures, which might be very much nice to have, um, can't be a force. They're not must-haves in planning. Um, watch this space. Uh, I think there's, a, there's some um, interesting issues there, and um, it may even be that the issue is tested in court, either in this or in a subsequent case. Um, that's all I'm going to say on the Sittingbourne case. Uh, and now, Chris, you're going to take us to Devon and tell us about in Paynton. I am going to take you to Devon. I'm also conscious that we've got the President of the Supreme Court, and I don't want to delay this interview very much longer. So I'm just going to be brief, if I may. Um, this is a case, an appeal decision for 400 houses on the edge of an area of outstanding natural beauty. And I think Rob has got the front sheet for us to put up. This is the appeal decision. Uh, White Rock adjacent to Brixham Road and as you can see up to 400 dwellings it was 373 um, in a location that is not in the AOMB but on the edge of the South Devon area of natural beauty. Now as, as for who appeared in this case we've got the appearance page at the back. It was uh, an all number five affair as, as far as the main parties were concerned. Peter Goatley acted for the appellant and they were successful. And against Peter was acting Nina Pindham. Um, now, I did a case in Brixham and uh, I couldn't appear at the local plan. And the client said, um, could a junior do it instead? And Nina appeared. And at the end of the case, the client said, we thought Nina was just going to run your arguments. But actually, Nina's arguments were much better than yours, which which hurt, obviously. <laughs> uh, but um but well done, Nina. Uh, you lost in this one, but you uh, you won the client's over in that case. And um, basically, it's about the effect on the AOMB for a site that's not on the AOMB. And we're seeing this increasingly, aren't we, that people are arguing a combination of landscape and heritage, even if it's not in the designated area. And I spoke to Peter Goatley today, and what he said is, he commends it. He won. So obviously he commends the inspector's decision, uh, as we do. But in particular, there's a really detailed analysis from the inspector about AOMB, taking into account the viewpoints, often with landscape evidence that doesn't really happen. There's not a detailed analysis. The nighttime analysis, everything is looked at really carefully by the inspector who accepts there's harm, but says um, that that harm is limited. And um, so um, as far as the approach is concerned, he said uh, in terms of lo localised effects, the proposed development would encroach and inevitably change the nature and appearance of the part of the countryside concerned, including the special landscape area and the settlement gap. And that would be detrimental to the intrinsic value it currently provides uh, to the edge of the settlements and to the wider AOMB. However, out, out, 
outweighed um, by the benefits of the scheme. And if we just go to the conclusions, um, which is, uh, hopefully we've got that, um, paragraph, uh, he says, flicking few, furiously, 93. I found the proposed development would conflict with the development plan policies, which resist the principle of development. And indeed, there was a whole series of them. There's about eight that were conflict. Uh, to which there was conflict, which would also include the partial closure of the existing settlement gap. Um, but he found there would be limited harm to the landscape character and appearance of the surrounding area, particularly with regard to the South, Down, uh, South Devon area of outstanding natural beauty and the settlement gap. And he obviously has to deal with the AOMB in terms of what the MPPF says, paragraph 172. He's given it great weight, but in the context of limited harm. Um, and then if we just go to the final paragraph, which I think is the most significant, this is a neighbourhood plan area. There was the Brixham Peninsula neighbourhood plan that had been made. Tall Bay is unusual. Three towns. Each town has a neighbourhood plan. Um, but the council had sewn up the whole area with all their countryside designations and policies seeking to protect the countryside that they couldn't demonstrate a five-year land supply and they couldn't even demonstrate a three-year land supply which, as we know, is a protection given to neighbourhood plan areas for two years past their adoption. So what he found was, very interestingly, um, an application of the tilted balance to which Lord Carnworth and others in the Supreme Court have uh, explained in the Richborough and Suffolk coastal case, not one of yours, Lady Hale, but um, uh, dealt with by a five-person court. Um, and he applies, the inspector applies the tilted balance because he finds, you'll be interested in this, Charlie, he finds that actually it wouldn't be a, um, the breaches he found wouldn't be a clear breach of the policies uh, in the MPPF protecting the AOMB. So really interesting decision about the AOMB, really careful handling by the inspector. And I'm afraid exactly what Lord Gill said in the Supreme Court, if you don't, if you apply your policies too rigidly on environmental protection, and then you haven't got a five-year land supply, don't be surprised if the inspector then reduces the weight given to those environmental protection policies, because you've got to have a fiber land supply. Um, well done to Peter Gately. A very interesting case. Thanks, Chris. Sasha, over to you. Thank you very much, Charlie. And good afternoon, Lady Hale. Thank you so much for joining us, because on behalf of us five collectively, we've done a lot of interviews with some pretty amazing people, but I don't think we've had a guest who encapsulates what you do, frankly, to all of us. I mean, your professional career is quite extraordinary. And for our audience, I just want to spend a moment on it to give them the context of what you've achieved, which in a profession of nearly 100,000 people to be the president of the Supreme Court and start your career in, at a time when, frankly, you're too modest to probably identify the hurdles and handicaps that you've faced solely as a basis of your gender were probably quite extraordinary. And I think looking at your career, I was just looking at your who's who entry, to master professor of law, to be a lecturer, you were a lecturer at Manchester at 21, which is quite extraordinary, to then go and become a professor, to become a law commissioner. Then you started being a part-time recorder in 1983. So I work out you were 37 years as a judge in various capacities, which for longevity is quite extraordinary as well. 
and then to get to the head of your profession, well, we all know with the calibre of your peers, and I always say this to people, when you go to the High Court and realise the calibre of High Court judges, anyone who has any doubt about the strength of the British judiciary should spend a day in the High Court. But to get to President of the Supreme Court, well, we're just so proud, as you can tell. I'm genuinely overwhelmed to have you on, and you're a hero to all of us and everyone who practices law in Britain today. So thank you so much for coming. And to be slightly more lightweight, you've just spent the past 20 minutes thinking about, I, yes, I remember those days when I'd have some weeks in the Supreme Court when I was de dealing with the powers of Parliament, and then suddenly this very strange planning dispute would pop up, and I was asking <laughs> views on H7 and H39 and where and the vast importance of houses, etc. Because I remember I appeared in front of you in Morge when you had to deal with bats and a guided yes. busway. And I was just looking while Charlie was speaking at your, you won't realise this probably, but you have given the seminal judgment that we all rely on about the role of officers and decision-making. And mm. your exact words are planning officers' reports are not to be made, read with undue rigour, but reasonable benevolence. And bearing in mind they're written for councillors with local with local knowledge. Now, you probably don't realise, but those two pillars, both the acknowledgement of councillors and what officers' reports should be subject to, are as seminal in our area of the law as any judgment in the past 20 years. So it's important to state that. Good Lord, I didn't know that. <laughs> but I think it's right. So. It, it, absolutely. Now, I, what yeah. I wanted to start off because because of your career is taking us out of planning for a moment and just discussing generally uh, as someone who's got a daughter who's entering the professional trying to. Can I just ask you, what advice would you give to the young who are who are entering the legal profession? What, what lessons would you say you've learned which might assist them in developing a career in the law? Well, one lesson is to bear in mind that there are many, many different sorts of law job around in which you can make a difference to something important, people's lives or government policy or how banking is regulated. There are many, many different law jobs which aren't self-employed practice. So... Even if that's your first ambition, remember to be flexible and look for something where you can make a real contribution. And on top of that, of course, there is, I'm afraid, work hard and don't let the bastards grind you down. Be <laughs> resilient. And, and do you, I mean, one of the key issues that we all face is, is the widening of access to the law mm -hmm. for those that want to become lawyers. I mean, in your experience, your obviously career has spanned quite some time. Do you think it is we've done a good job to widen access or not? How would you audit 2021? Well, 2021 is a great deal better than 1969 when I was called to the bar. Uh, the gender balance is hugely improved, although still not so improved at QC level or at the higher reaches of the judiciary, but it is improved. The socioeconomic background balance, I think, has also uh, been greatly improved. Uh, but of course, recent developments are not necessarily going to continue that trend 
because of the increasing cost of getting the necessary qualifications, coupled with the decreasing number of opportunities available. That's one of my reasons for talking about being flexible and remember how many different jobs that are available in the law. Uh, but yes, we've done better, but not yet well enough. Uh, and can I ask, in, in relation, I've obviously outlined your, your period of sitting as a judge. Now, many of our audience are involved in decision making, whether it be as counsellors, officers, or, or making applications. Can I just ask you, what when you, over your career, were, were effectively reaching and formulating a decision, what, what was the approach you took as a judge to decision making? Well, of course, the approach which a judge should take to decision making is very different from the approach which counsel should take to decision making. Uh, and it's well summed up, counsel's approach is well summed up in a aphorism of um, Stephen Sedley, which I'm fond of quoting, uh, which is that the great skill of counsel is to reason from a given conclusion. So you work out what the best result your client can achieve is, and then you work backwards from that to the best way of um, convincing the court, the tribunal, the inspector uh, uh, of that result. Now, a judge should start at the other end. The judge should start with what the law is, what the principles of the law are, how you construe statutes and other sorts of um, legislation, what the facts are, what the evidence is, if you're a first instance judge, and then consider the arguments and work your way towards the conclusion. So you don't start with the conclusion, that's where you end up. You do have to, of course, check it against common sense, practicality, and so on and so forth. And it mustn't be absurd, but you don't start with it. So there's a big difference. And I imagine that what a planning officer has to do is a bit between the two, because they've basically got to be like a judge, but bear in mind that they are writing for a very different sort of tribunal from the, the ones that uh, the council are uh, addressing. So, different styles of decision-making for uh, different uh, professions. But the one thing that I would say is that it's an indispensable qualification for a judge to be able to make up your mind. Mm. In the end, that's what we are paid for. Mm. We are paid for a decision, an accountable, defensible decision. But uh, it's a terrible burden uh, if a judge can't make up his or her mind. So mm. it's the most important part. And can I ask, I suppose I shouldn't ask, because I might be about to make the five of us and the planning bar redundant, but, but <laughs> were you persuaded by advocacy? Did you find yourself changing your mind during the course of a case? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Especially in the Supreme Court, mm. because by definition, all the cases that get to the Supreme Court involve an arguable point of law of general public importance. It's arguable and it matters. Mm -hmm. And very, not very frequently, but I rarely went into a hearing with a, a, a mind that was made up as to what the answer was. Um, I might have uh, views about uh, the approach, but the answer I, I wouldn't go in having predetermined. And so obviously the what was said in court 
not, I think, the style or the standing of what was said in court, but the quality of what was said in court could indeed change one's mind. Okay. So be reassured. <laughs> you are not good. redundant, Sarah. <laughs> and that, that is reassuring, Lady Hill. And tell us, can you tell us back, can we go back to the, the day in 1983 when you first sat as an assistant recorder? Did you feel comfortable or were you, did you have a sense of imposter syndrome? Crikey, here I am having to make a decision. I have had imposter syndrome at several points in my life. You know? when, I, when I first went to the high school, when I first went to Cambridge, um, probably not when I first went to teach in Manchester. Uh, when I went to the Law Commission, definitely big um, imposter syndrome. And yes, setting out not so much in the family and civil courts, uh, but in the criminal courts, I found uh, presiding over jury trials so counterintuitive to anything that I had previously done, but uh, I certainly found that difficult. By the time I got to the High Court, I'd been sitting for so long that I thought I knew what I was about. Um, so, but imposter syndrome we all have, or we should have, and if we don't, we're a bit too cocky for our own good, aren't we? I completely agree. <laughs> and, and out of your stages in your judicial career, which one did you enjoy? Did you enjoy the solitude of this high court or did you enjoy the camaraderie of the court of appeal or the intellectual challenge of the supreme court which was your favorite period oh i think favorite was the supreme court because i love the law i love legal conundrum um trying to find a, a correct a good principled solution that works and makes sense um, so yes i did like that and i like writing judgments because i like to try and write something which is clear, comprehensible, um, and not too long. Um, being a first instance judge is very, very different. It is enjoyable because every case is different. And there's something really fascinating about hearing evidence and trying to work out who's telling you the truth and who's telling you lies. Actually, in family cases, uh, there were people who were telling barefaced lies, but there were also often people who were giving their account of an incident, which is how they remembered it, having convinced themselves that it had happened in a particular way. And you could recognise the incident, but it was being described very differently by different uh, witnesses. Uh, but yes, that was, that was also um, very interesting and from time to time, very entertaining. But it was far more stressful than deciding points of law in either the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court. I, I was about to say, Lady, mm. did you find, I mean, I've always thought the emotional stress of the family division, giving care orders and mm. so on, the nature of the work that you started specialising in, in the, in the High Court, did you find there was an emotional toll? Did you sometimes go home and think, crikey, that was a really tough day? Yes. Definitely. I think it's the only time in my judicial career when I have had the odd sleepless night. But you basically have to work things out. You know, you, you have to reason. <laughs> you, know, you have to reason why you believe X rather than Y, uh, what the relevant criteria are for your decision. And, and if you can explain it in a way which makes sense to you, well, then and hopefully to other people, including the Court of Appeal, uh, well, then 
you feel you've done the right thing, uh, even if it worries you uh, that the right thing is not going to make anybody any happier, and it often isn't. And can I just ask, looking slightly in the future again, getting back to issues of diversity and equality, mm. I mean, the five of us have reasonable roles in our respective sets. I mean, what would you say to us? What needs to happen? What should we be doing over the next 10 to 15 years to, to finally redress the balance in, in equality and diversity, in your judgment? Uh, well, different aspects of diversity pose different challenges. I mean, gender poses is one set of, of challenges uh, and that has to do with um, lifestyle um, preferences uh, and the necessity of the profession to accommodate those otherwise they will lose some very good women who will go and do other things which accommodate their lifestyle preferences rather better and of course the more men who could have the same um, preferences uh, the more uh, chambers would learn to accommodate the uh, the preferences of, of women uh, so that's one set of problems. Ethnicity is an even more complex situation because the barriers uh, faced by different ethnic groups are in themselves very different. Uh, and uh, as has recently been, been pointed out, we should not be lumping all ethnic minorities into the same pot because um, they, they are not the same. Uh, and obviously that the bar has to do whatever it can to recognise um, the, the difficulties which people have faced. Uh, and that is true for different socioeconomic and educational backgrounds as well. Uh, I think there's quite a lot to be said for anonymising applications, written applications, mm. so that you can't tell either the gender or the ethnicity of the applicant. There's quite a lot to be said for looking at educational achievement in a way which doesn't bias you in favour of certain educational institutions. I, I wouldn't myself necessarily assume that somebody who had been to a Russell Group University and got a good result there was better than somebody who'd been to a different university and got a good result there. I have seen excellent people from all sorts of educational institutions, uh, but there is undoubtedly unconscious bias in favour of uh, certain of them. So all of those things have to be thought about very carefully because you want the best, don't you? That's what you want. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, and, and going back to your your career as a judge, would, would you mind if it's okay just for me to ask you, what, what was your toughest decision? Does one spring yeah. out the toughest decision you had to make in your time as a judge? I'm not sure that I could single any particular one out, but they were undoubtedly when I was in the family division and I was deciding either to take a child away from the birth family forever, or, and that was often tougher, mm. to let them keep the child. Mm. Because that is the braver decision when you've got uh, evidence that the child either has suffered or may well suffer significant harm. Um, but nevertheless, 
there are sufficient positives in the situation, uh, which after all should be biased in favour of keeping the child within the family rather than against it. <laughs> but in practice, by the time a case gets to court, it is frequently biased in favour of removing the child. And I think the bias should be in favour of leaving the child within the family uh, for, for a huge number of reasons, both of principle and practicality. Um, and so those were the toughest decisions, undoubtedly. Um, child who had been sexually abused from the age of about six by her father. This is just an example. Maternal grandparents, very decent people, found it extremely difficult to accept that that is what had happened. I myself have very little doubt that the mother was also subject to uh, abuse of various sorts. But in the end, the child went to be cared for by the grandparents. I don't, of course, know what happened, but that did seem to be the right result at the time. Um, so that's, that's only an example of, of many similar cases. Mm. And then being on a slightly happier and sunnier climbs, what, what would you say, because obviously there is an issue or there's a so-called issue with recruitment to the judiciary and it's per pertinent for the five of us and others, what would you say were the best elements of the job that you enjoyed in your time as a judge? As a judge? Mm. Oh, it's all absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Every case. I mean, the first instance ones, the legal problems were very similar, but every family is different and all the people were different. And of course, as a family judge, you're uh, concerned about the people. As planners, of course, you're concerned about the business or the environment or whatever. But every case is different uh, and it presents its own challenges. Uh, so what's not to like? Mm. Absolutely. As long as you're capable of making up your mind. Back to what I was saying earlier. <laughs> and there are some people who really hate it, and, and so that they shouldn't be judges. Mm. Well, okay, can I, can I then ask Mary, would you like to ask a question of Lady Hale? I would, thank you very much, um, Sasha. Uh, so my question is a, is a little bit more legal, legalistic. Um, <laughs> uh, just in the context of judicial review and the Forks Commission, I was interested in what your views are on the need for the new remedies that are being proposed. It seems to me that allowing uh, the government to avoid, for example, the quashing of regulations where there's been inadequate consultation leading up to those regulations may not feel like the right result to some. Do, do you have any views, Lady Hale? I, of course, have views. <laughs> uh, I, I may try and be a little bit cautious about expressing every view that I have. Uh, nor can I claim to be as familiar with every word of what has recently been published as no doubt I should be. But my impression of the Fox report mm. is that it was a very careful, thorough and well-balanced report given the short amount of time in which they had to do it. And of course, they only recommended 
two things. One was the reversal of uh, CART, the CART decision, um, which won't affect any of you, I don't suppose it affects really planners at all. Uh, and although I wrote the judgment in the CART case, I completely understand uh, the reasons for um, uh, departing from that uh, and uh, don't object strongly. The other uh, recommendation that they made was that the court should have the possibility of suspending the operation of a quashing order. Mm. Now, in Ahmed and HM Treasury, we held that there was no power to do that because it was illogical. But nevertheless, I can very well see that there are good practical reasons for that. Those are the only two recommendations that they made. And I don't have any problem with that. What then happened, of course, was that the government, having set up an independent review of administrative law, has since pre produced a reaction saying, oh, yes, well, we like the two changes you have produced, but clearly we don't think you've gone far enough and we want to consult on all sorts of much more radical changes. Um, and that's about all I'm prepared to say about that. <laughs> Paul. Very revealing, and thank you very much. <laughs> it is important to read both documents because yes. they are so different. They are incomparable. Um, Lady Hale, um, just as a run-up to the wicket, uh, as, as somebody from another Yorkshire market town who also went to Cambridge and then spent his professional life in Manchester, uh, <laughs> and I've been clerked by a clerk, uh, who for 30 years has been effectively your biggest fan, that Phil Brown, who you know well. Um, I, I feel like I've, had, I've seen your life from, from the, the outside, so it's a delight to be able to have the pleasure to ask you a question. You, you were, I think, the first, uh, first woman and the youngest person to be appointed to the Law Commission. Um, mm. And the Law Commission as a body is, is perhaps not as well known as perhaps it should be uh, mm. in terms of its importance. So I'm quite interested in knowing what the interaction is between an ad hoc review such as the Shorks Commission and the work of the Law Commission. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I think that the Law Commission is, for many types of um, reform, much better qualified to conduct it, the review than is either an ad hoc group or the court. And I have from time to time said, I don't think we should be changing this particular rule of the common law because I think it has policy implications, uh, empirical evidence is needed, consultation is needed, and we should be leaving it to a body like the Law Commission who will make recommendations to Parliament. I have been known to say, I don't want to change the law. Please remember that. Um, but um, as between an ad hoc body and the Law Commission, that is much more difficult because... The point about the Law Commission is that it can be very thorough. It takes time. It's got research resources. It consults. It's thorough, but it takes time. It has five commissioners from uh, usually a variety. There's, there's a, a judge who chairs. There's usually a, a top barrister. They always hope that they've got a top solicitor and a couple of academics. The balance is not necessarily always the same. But the idea is that if you have five distinguished lawyers from different backgrounds who all think that there's something wrong with the law and all agree on how to put it right, that gives their recommendations a strength that they wouldn't otherwise have. 
But the downside is, of course, that they're not all specialists or they are not representative of the specialism. And so ad hoc bodies can sometimes be better when it is a in certain sorts of area. And I myself, of course, while I was at the Law Commission, was involved in the review of child care law, which was done by a body which was not the Law Commission. It was an interdepartmental committee, in fact, with all the um, interested government departments represented uh, and uh, the Law Commission as doing the sort of in-depth legal thinking and some policy thinking too. And that worked so well that I have to say that ad hoc bodies can be pretty good. And uh, so I, I, I'm certainly not against something like the Forbes Review, uh, which I think given the length of time that it had and the resources that it had, uh, did a pretty good job. But then I would say that, wouldn't I? Because they only produced two recommendations for change, or at least two substantive recommendations for change. So perhaps I would. <laughs> Brilliant. Charlie. Thanks, Sasha. Um, anyhow, my sort of uh, run up to, the, to my question is, is, is this, that the, the current proposed reforms to judicial review are far from the first time in my still relatively short career that governments of all political complexions have sought to make inroads of some sort or other into the, the reach of judicial review of administrative action. Um, so my question for you is, would a written or codified constitution uh, provide protection in future from this? And is it time we had one? <laughs> well, Charlie, you said to me um, earlier that you thought that I would be in favour of a written constitution. Uh, yeah. I don't think where you got that idea from, <laughs> because in fact, I'm not. And But the reason that I'm not is that in the... Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, we have quite a lot of experience of written constitutions. And they are very good at entrenching fundamental human rights, and they're very good at entrenching the independence of the judiciary, both of which we have at the moment in this country. And if there were any serious threat to either of those, well, then I would possibly be changing my mind. But what they're not good at is answering the really tricky boundary questions, boundary disputes between, you know, they say there shall be a legislature that makes laws, there shall be a government that runs the country, there shall be a judicature which applies the laws, enforces the laws, interprets the laws, um, and sometimes makes the laws if it's a common law country. But they don't answer those really tricky little things. Um, I was in Malaysia, which has a written constitution, giving a lecture just before the first of the Miller cases, mm. uh, which was all about uh, whether the government could um, pull the trigger uh, on, on Brexit without parliamentary uh, approval. And so I looked at the Malaysian constitution and I asked myself, would that constitution give me the answer to this question? because it was very, very like a lot of other com Commonwealth constitutions answer. Of course it didn't. Mm. And similarly, uh, it wouldn't give you the answer to uh, judicial review and the limits of judicial review. It would assume the existence of judicial review, but it wouldn't give you the answer to anything that we're talking about. So that's really what I, it very rarely gives you the answer to the really difficult questions. Thank and the number two is, 
Can you ever foresee the sovereign parliament of the United Kingdom voting for a written constitution, which by definition would limit its powers and give more powers to the judges? Can you foresee that happening? Well, if you can, you are an extraordinarily far-sighted person. <laughs> That's true. I'm ever the optimist of everybody who knows me knows, but I think it's even beyond my optimism, probably. Thank you. Fasc very fascinating answer. Chris? Sasha, thank you. Uh, Lady Hale, you gave a speech in, this is my run-up question, you gave a speech at Girton uh, College in 2019, 100 Years of Women in the Law, and you said that women's lives are necessarily sometimes different from men's, and that experience of leading those lives is just as valid and just as important. Now, with a wife who's at the bar and a daughter who wants to go to the bar, um, I have to say that observation is is really, really insightful and helpful from the top judge in the country. If we imagine that women's lives are the same as men's, we're just being um, naive, aren't we? The, the experience is different. It is completely different. And that needs to be recognised. And what a positive observation you made there, if I may say so. Thank you. And your question is? And my question <laughs> is uh, all legal. Um, uh, my question is this. Uh, you have said about judicial review that in the vast majority of cases, cases judicial review is the servant of parliament. Uh, it is there to ensure that public authorities at all levels act in accordance with the law which Parliament has laid down, in only a very few cases does it operate to ensure that public authorities act in accordance with the common law. So my question is, why is it, because we've got lots of non-lawyers watching, why is it so important that judicial review should act to reinforce the will of Parliament? And why are those there, and why are there occasions when it should legitimately, legitimately challenge it? Mm. Yes, um, Thank you for uh, quoting what I actually said. <laughs> Those of you who have read the government's consultation paper will realise that it quotes me as saying something very different, which I haven't actually said. But yes, I mean, the purpose of judicial review is usually to review the exercise of statutory powers, uh, and that means reviewing whether they have been exercised in accordance with the purpose of those statutory powers, in accordance with the limits of those statutory powers, in accordance uh, with whatever the uh, procedure laid down or the implicit procedure implied in those statutory powers. That's that's the basic function of judicial review. I think I think I've got that more or less right. Um, and so, given that the fundamental principles of our constitution are that Parliament is sovereign, it can make or unmake any law, and the rule of law, which means that the function of the courts through judicial review is to interpret and apply those laws, well, that's why judicial review is, uh, to a large extent, the servant of Parliament. But that doesn't mean to say that the courts have not got the duty of properly interpreting uh, the 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 parliamentary uh, intention, the legislative intention, and applying it to the facts of the particular case. Uh, and uh, we have various canons of, of statutory 
construction, which help us to do that. Um, um, various principles of judicial review, which help us to do that. And it's a balance, obviously, between uh, respecting uh, what Parliament has laid down uh, and ensuring that it is properly applied as opposed to improperly applied. And I don't say any improper motive. I mean, uh, just in accordance uh, with how it should be applied. Thank you. Um, very conventional I... answer there. Nothing... <laughs> Nothing very uh, uh, challenging about that answer. We're almost at the end, but but um, one of the questions we've had from the audience is from somebody who is on the the folks panel, and I think we've we've got we must ask that question. Uh, and and that person ha has asked, is there something in the um, uh, the report of the independent review um, that you wish the panel had addressed but didn't, or, or which you wish they'd addressed better or, or more fully? Uh, and oh, oh. oh, that's 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 a wonderful question. Um, and I <laughs> haven't really worked out an answer to it. So will you forgive me? I, I, I do congratulate the panel on the job that they did in a very short amount of time. Um, and I thank the panel for the very balanced way in which they uh, addressed uh, the role of the courts and what the courts had been doing. Um, and so I'm sure there are things that I might have wished that they might have said, uh, but that would involve a line-by-line -line critique of the report, <laughs> which I haven't yet got down to doing. Uh, but you never know. One of these days, maybe I might. <laughs> Thank you. Brilliant. Well, Charlie, uh, thank you so much, Lady Hale, for a completely captivating half hour. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Charlie, back to you. Thanks. Thanks, Ash. And a huge thank you for me. And if I may say so, thank you for all the inspiration you have provided and continue to provide to us all, all of us. Um, oh, you're far too kind to me, all of you. It's true. And it needs to be, it really does need to be said. Uh, we can't wait to see you in person once that's possible. I know you've had your second jab. I've got my first tomorrow. Um, and so... Ooh. Are you well, old enough, Charlie? I, well, I've been mocking the others that I haven't been asked for a jab uh, uh, until last week's show, and now even I am old enough. <laughs> what uh, I love about that, Lady Hale, is that he was showing off and you cut him right down to size. Not for the first time. Don't have to even go to old enough to vote, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, next week, we have planning supremo Catriona Riddle uh, joining us, which we're really hugely looking forward to, not least because um, it's uh, Queen's Speech Day next week and, and there's likely to be mention of planning reforms there. So we'll get her impeccable insight on that. Um, thank you once again, Lady Hale. Um, and thank you to our viewers for, for the various questions. Um, and we'll see, see your viewers next week. Take care. Have a lovely evening. Good night. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>